Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 5th, 2019, and my guest is author and journalist Benjamin Applebaum of the editorial board of the New York Times. He is the author of The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Benjamin, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. Your book is a history of the last 50 or so years of economists, their ideas, their influence on public policy. The star of the book is Milton Friedman, I would say. He's also the villain. Uh, How do you characterize Friedman's view of the world and that of his fellow travelers? If I'm using an ironic term. And um, what have they accomplished that that you uh, find uh, problematic? So I think of this book as the story of a revolution that really gets going uh, in the late 1960s and the early 1970s, where Friedman and a number of like-minded economists uh, really begin to influence government policy across a wide range of areas. And, and specifically, uh, I think of, of their message as being quite simple. What they are saying is government is overly involved in the economy. It has its hand on too many of the levers. It needs to pull back. Uh, it needs to trust in market forces. Uh, it needs to allow markets to allocate resources and to do less central planning, less economic management, less regulation. Uh, the problems the economy is facing are basically a result of the government's uh, involvement, uh, and the solution is for the government to be less involved. And that grew somewhat out of uh, the Mont Pelerin Society meetings at the end of World War II, where Hayek and Friedman and others were concerned about the collectivist trend that was obviously part of the Soviet Union was starting to influence uh, the United Kingdom, England, and and parts of Europe. Uh, do you think we've gone too far, I would say, is how I'd characterize, in the other direction, is how I'd characterize your, your assessment? Yes, I think that's right. So the overall assessment here is that this revolution, as many revolutions do, went too far. Uh, that this effort uh, began with real problems. There were you know genuine issues that needed to be addressed uh, in the mid-century, areas in which economic policy was broken, uh, real problems in the economy, and and some of these solutions initially were quite constructive and productive, but uh, we took them too far. And so if you sort of look at the sum total of this half century of uh, hands-off economic policy, uh, there are sort of three big consequences. The first is uh, that I think it's been bad for economic growth. Uh, and the central reason there uh, is that uh, we need government regulation to stabilize growth. Uh, we need government investment to plant the seeds for growth. Uh, and I think in the absence of those forces, uh, we all have suffered. The second issue is inequality. Uh, one of the central messages that economists brought to policymakers uh, was that inequality was both overrated as a policy issue uh, and that trying to deal with inequality came at the expense of economic growth. Uh, they convinced policymakers to, uh, to do less about inequality, to reduce the government's efforts to combat inequality. Uh, and as a consequence, I think that's one big reason, not the only reason, but one big reason that we have a lot more uh, inequality. And the third issue, which I think we're, uh, you know, uh, grappling with particularly in recent years, uh, is that inequality has come at the expense of democracy. Uh, the idea of we the people is being strained because we have less and less in common. 
and as a consequence, it is harder to govern this society and other societies suffering with similar issues. Uh, it is harder to construct a sense of common purpose and to pursue shared goals. So let's go through those one by one. I, before we do, I want to challenge the basic thesis that underlies the book, which is that it's a revolution. Um, I think there are two things to, to wonder about. One is, and I, I think this is somewhat true, but this is clearly a matter of judgment, and that is, I think, uh, economists certainly have the rhetoric that politicians use, whether they're the underlying cause of the revolution is always an interesting question. And we can talk about that, about that if you want. I think that the harder challenge uh, to your claim and set of claims is that uh, when I interviewed Milton Friedman in 2006 and we talked about his book, Capitalism and Freedom, which you talk about in, in some detail in the book and the policy proposals that he put forward there um, – he, he was rather disappointed looking back on his life at how little he had accomplished. Uh, yes, the volunteer army had come into being, and you devote a really superb chapter of the history of how that happened and the role that economists played in it. Um, uh, we have sort of floating exchange rates, which was another idea he'd put forward in the book. The rest of that book, just all the policies, they, they're on the table, or they were put on the table, which was quite an achievement for him, I think. His intellectual accomplishment there was was extraordinary, but if you look down the list, ending corporate welfare, uh, ending various subsidies to, to business and elsewhere, uh, eliminating the Social Security system, um, a, a negative income tax, which now is again on the table in a form of the universal basic income, may happen but hasn't, to replace the uh, labyrinth and Kafka-esque welfare system we have now. Uh, a smaller government, lower tax rates, uh, more role for, for individual initiative. Most of those things didn't happen. So why do you give so much credence? What's the – a better way to say it is I, – I think, I think Friedman would say it's a revolution that failed. It slowed down the horse, but it didn't turn it back toward the direction he wanted it to go. Why do you feel it was so influential? So I think, you know, I, I guess I'd kind of disagree with Friedman's assessment in a couple of respects. The first is, I think, you know, one thing missing. It was from just that being list. modest. Is <laughs> one possibility. I, I didn't feel that, though. Go ahead. I, I don't doubt that he was disappointed. He wanted more than he got. There's no question about that. There were types of change he pushed for that didn't materialize or that didn't materialize as fully as he'd like. So we have an earned income tax credit, but we don't have the full realization of his vision in that respect. Uh, one thing that wasn't on your list that I think is really important is his success in, uh, you know, placing monetary policy uh, in the central role as an actor in macroeconomic uh, policy. Um, but I, I think that, you know, there's two important points here. The first is that the successes deserve, you know, consideration. They they need to be weighed, and they really were considerable. Uh, and the second is that this isn't just the story of Milton Friedman. So he was not a central voice in the push to flatten income taxation, but that is an area in which a similar set of ideas prevailed. He was not the primary advocate for the deregulation, for the end of economic regulation uh, of industry, but that is an area in which the ideas of economists who were allied with his vision uh, also prevailed and had a significant effect on the economy. So I think it's true that Friedman, if you sort of took the, you know, the 10 biggest things he wanted to change about the world, a number of them happened quite, I think, quite fully. A number of them happened partially. A number of them failed to happen or are still, you know, open questions. 
Um, but I think the sum total of his influence was massive. Most people don't succeed in winning even one battle of that magnitude. Uh, and he came in and changed our society in multiple respects. And he did it through a really unusual combination of a scientific, I hate to use that word with respect to economics, but he did and many people would use it. His scientific uh, legacy was established as a scholar on top of that, he had incredible charisma, and he was a superb, clear writer, which he was not a brilliant stylist like his buddy George Stigler, but he was a very good communicator, obviously. Um, I'm hoping we're going to get through those three things I mentioned that you mentioned. We might not, because <laughs> I want to backtrack, and I want to talk about regulation. Um, certainly, free market folks, now increasingly called neoliberals, uh, I like to call us classical liberals, uh, and Friedman used that term uh, as well, classical liberals do want less. Reg- did want less regulation of of industry. Uh, they got it in trucking. They got it in airlines. As you say in the book, it's been very good. That was very good for consumers. Um, in a lot of areas, of the rest of the economy that are much more regulated than they used to be. Health. They're the commanding heights. Healthcare, education, the financial sector, which is a mix of deregulation and bailouts, subsidies, sweet <laughs> deals. Um, so I don't see, I see the glasses very half empty, even on that basic idea of deregulation. I think that there are two glasses. The first of them is a concept that largely is no longer with us, and it's a little hard to remember how important it was in the mid-century, which is that the government was playing an active role in setting prices and in regulating prices uh, and regulating quantities And this type of economic regulation was really quite pervasive. I mean, some of the more famous examples are the government's control of the airline industry and of other transportation sectors, its control of telecommunications. But, you know, for several mid-century administrations, they thought nothing of intervening to set steel prices, uh, establishing price boards to deal with inflation. They thought of setting prices as a valid tool of government macroeconomic policy, and they used it at times in quite a sweeping fashion. This reached its absolute apogee under Richard Nixon uh, and his battle against inflation in the early 1970s. That whole concept has been fundamentally discredited, uh, and it would be inconceivable for a modern president to stand up and say, we are going to create a board to determine the prices of commodities across the economy. And so that, I think, is a victory, and it's something that changed because uh, economists were successful in articulating an alternative framework, because the efforts to do it failed rather magnificently, and it was hard to, to miss the fact of the failure. Uh, at the same time, there was another glass, which was uh, health and safety and environmental regulation, a set of concerns that really the government was not attempting to regulate for the most part uh, at, in the mid-century. And, and beginning in the 60s and the 70s, the government creates this panoply of new regulatory agencies to really begin for the first time asserting a federal role in protecting workers, in protecting consumers, and in protecting the environment And the result is that the sum total of regulation has increased, undoubtedly, uh, but that uh, one kind of regulation has gone away almost completely and another that didn't really exist has more than taken its place. Uh, So it's a bit of a nuanced story there. Uh, One victory and then from the perspective of those who would like regulation, an an offsetting defeat. So when you now move, I hope, to your three uh, parts of that revolution or impacts of that revolution, the the bad growth – I don't think we understand growth very well. Um, 
Again, free market types tend to think regulation slows growth down. Obviously, there's some regulations that enhance growth. There's government intervention that can enhance growth through infrastructure, the educational system, if it's done well. Given the rich ups and downs of regulation uh, and investment by the government in in infrastructure and education with very mixed results, uh, why do you blame uh, free market ideology for the mediocre growth of, say, the 70s and 80s, um, or the, the post, I, I guess the I, people like to pick on 1973s, but sometime in the 70s it's claimed something changed. I think it's funny that we don't know what that is, but the data seems to suggest it changed. Why would you argue that that's a free market, the result of free markets? So I want to agree, first off, that our understanding of growth is highly incomplete uh, and that we are, to some extent here, talking about things we don't fully understand. But it is a fact that average growth declined in every decade from the 60s through the aughts uh, in the United States, adjusted for population. Uh, And it is a fact that during that period, we saw a fundamental shift in our approach to managing the economy. If we think that that approach was consequential, it's not unreasonable at least to wonder about how it might have affected that trend. Uh, And I think there's a couple of levers in particular uh, where there is evidence that it would have been influential. One of the most important, you know, perhaps one way to frame this is to think about the 1990s, which was a period that many of us remember as the last time things were really good. Uh, And one thing about the 1990s that often gets lost in that discussion about all of the things that economic policymakers were doing at that time is the things that had been put in place before that time. We entered the 1990s with the most educated workforce in the developed world. Uh, we entered the 1990s with a with a uh, you know a war chest basically of innovation that had been stored up in part through funding of basic research, uh, in part through you know a development ecosystem that had very different rules than the modern system uh, in terms of of patents uh, and protections for intellectual property. Uh, we come into that era basically with a lot of smart people ready to take advantage of technology, and the economy uh, experiences a boom as a consequence of those investments. Uh, during the 1990s, we reduced those investments. We're no longer funding education in the same way. We're no longer investing in research in the same way. We're allowing companies increasingly to tighten their control over intellectual property. Uh, and I think that you know it's not a coincidence that, that uh, growth declines in the aftermath. If you stop planting seeds in the orchard, you get fewer, you get fewer apples. I have to disagree on part of that. Um, a couple parts I want to, want to push back on. One is... Uh, education expenditures at, I'd say, every level have gone up since the 1990s. Um, I'm not sure education's gone up. <laughs> there are more people sitting in chairs in schools. Um, there are more people going to college, a lot more. Uh, there was a big push in the uh, in parts of the 2000s to subsidize college education through cheaper loans that did encourage a lot more people to go. They didn't finish, uh, many of them, which is a tragedy. And now they're stuck with some some loans. The other thing I'd point to, and this is, you know, we could spend the whole time on this, so uh, we, I don't want to, but I, I want to mention it, and you can respond to it. A, a lot of people felt and said uh, that we had gotten much better at controlling the economy using monetary policy, as you alluded to earlier, the use of increased use of monetary policy. Uh, that story fell apart in 2008, and we'll talk, I hope, about why that happened. But one of the things that happened in the 90s was uh, a couple of things that happened in the 90s that were, I thought, important, which were the, uh, the Mexican crisis, where the government bailed out. They said they bailed out Mexico. They really bailed out the 
American banks that had lent money to Mexico. Uh, they orchestrated the rescue of long-term capital management, the hedge fund that blew up or was about to blow up and take a lot of folks down with it. Um, and so I don't see it as a, um, a golden age of, of either investment or uh, macroeconomic policy. I certainly agree that there were big problems in both of those areas, which we can absolutely talk about. Uh, you know, the story particularly of what's happening in the financial industry is kind of double-edged. On the one hand, the government is pulling back and allowing these institutions to do a lot more things. And on the other hand, as a consequence, it's more intimately involved in sustaining them. Uh, and that ends up uh, having consequences that we're living with today. You want to say anything about the education story? So I think that... And you the know, infrastructure issue, investment. Uh, I, mean, I think an enormous expansion of, of research and of all kinds, not necessarily at the most fundamental levels, but amount of money that's being spent so in, in theory we're we should be we're planting a lot of seeds but those are so that's a very critical distinction right funding for basic research is something that government historically has had to provide because it's under provided by private industry uh and so i think you know while it's true that in aggregate we're spending more on everything that is called research the, the nature of that investment has shifted in ways that I think are consequential. Uh, and with regard to education, similarly, while total spending on education has increased, the nature of that spending has changed very fundamentally. Much more of it is in the form of borrowed money. Uh, what people are obtaining with that borrowed money is different, and the expense that they incur in order to obtain those educations ends up hampering uh, the type of lives that they lead. So I want to throw out a, an alternative hypothesis to see your, get your thoughts because uh, it, it is a fact that, that per capita growth rates are not what they were. I mean, there's a lot of macro international issues that that might be caused by. Some people would blame oil prices sometimes. Sometimes they would blame the rise of other economies that compete with us. Let's put that to the side. Let's talk about just what's directly happening uh, in, the, in the United States. One of the things that we've done over the last, uh, I would say the two most important things that economists often neglect over the last 40 years is the change in the American family, enormous change in, in the mix and dem demography of, of family structure in the United States, and which has Im implications we don't, I don't think, fully understand. The second would be the uh, incredible subsidization of health care starting in the 60s, uh, which ironically, we're talking about Milton Friedman, but the, you know, the... Uh, the, the, the withholding that, that he put in place in World War II, uh, and then I think the alongside that was the tax deductibility of health care costs for employers. Then the Great Society comes along. We, we basically have subsidized the demand for health care tremendously. We have restricted the supply, not totally, but we make it hard to become a doctor in the United States. We make it hard for a foreign doctor to come here in the United States. We make it really hard for hospitals to open. Uh, we've done all these things which have made healthcare a ridiculously expensive uh, item relative to what we get from it. Uh, I think we have great healthcare in the United States for most Americans. Many don't have access to it, but the ones who do, it's fantastic. But it's still incredibly expensive. We've put away too many resources. And that, I think, by doing that through the employment process and making employer based healthcare the norm has been a, a hideous disaster for growth establishing new businesses and so on. So I, I absolutely agree. I'm highly sympathetic to the idea that our health system is, is broken and that that has enormous consequences for our economy. Uh, you know, the book does not get into that because it's the story of economists rather than the economy. 
and there is a difference. Uh, you know, this is not an area in which economists have have succeeded uh, in reshaping the system. Obviously, uh, but I do think it's enormously consequential, and I do think that that the changes in uh, our society, in our social life, in our communities, in our families are enormously consequential as well. I think that there's a feedback loop between. Uh, economic breakdowns and and societal breakdowns that is is difficult to unpack but really important to think about. Uh, and then the third thing that I'd mentioned that I think has has contributed to slower growth is inequality. I, I think there is a growing body of of really interesting evidence that inequality itself uh, begins to weigh on growth, and I think that is important. Yeah, I I don't agree with that, uh, but <clears throat> that's a long topic for another time. I just think the I'm I'm much more concerned about poverty and opportunity at the bottom of the income distribution that I'm about the gap between the top and the bottom. And I find it hard to understand how that gap itself has a causal impact on other things, given that most of the time we can't sense it. We don't know what it is unless we happen to open an economics data book. Uh, but let's talk about inequality. Why do you blame uh, free market policies for that? Well, here I think the story is much clearer and much more direct uh, because it was an explicit purpose of many of these policies to shift the focus of government policy uh, from an equalization of opportunity and of distribution of, of output uh, to an emphasis on efficiency and overall growth. And we can see this in, in a bunch of different areas of policy. It's certainly true of the tax code, where there was a judgment that the government was far too involved in taking uh, money from those who made the most uh, it's certainly true of monetary policy, where the emphasis on inflation came at the expense of uh, tolerating a higher than necessary rate of unemployment. Uh, it's true uh, in the area of deregulation, where the Carter administration, which got this train rolling, uh, was explicitly focused on reducing what it saw as excess compensation for workers in protected industries uh, to benefit uh, well, they thought they were going to benefit consumers, and they probably did to some extent. The people who actually ended up getting a lot of that money were the executives at those companies and the investors in those companies. Uh, but in area after area of economic policy, there was this explicit uh, focus on, on setting aside a concern uh, for distribution and for equality, which was seen as problematic, uh, and focusing instead on efficiency. And, and they got what they wanted. Let's talk about that inflation unemployment trade-off because you spend a lot of time in the book on monetary policy, the behavior of the Fed. Um, and I just want to, as a footnote, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, uh, this is I knew I knew or know many of the characters in your book, uh, the economists. Some of them are my teachers, some are my colleagues, um, and I have to say, even though I disagree with some of your conclusions, you do a superb job in laying out the history of how the intellectual ideas evolved in the profession. Um, it's, um, it's an extremely impressive book in that way, and it's, with, with one or two nitpicks, it's extremely fair to the people who were involved. Most of my disagreement comes with the conclusions you draw from it, but I think it's important to state for listeners who are either on my side of the fence or on a different side, I think what's strong about the book and, and what's... Uh, what, what its strengths are, and it's really, uh, you've done a, really an excellent job laying that out. Um, but on the, so this issue that you do spend a lot of time on, which of course is very important, the, it's, at least seems to be the, the Federal Reserve and, and, uh, and monetary policy, and you're very critical of this movement uh, toward fighting inflation. So talk about whether that's, how that came about, and, uh, and then I want to give some thoughts on why I think, I think you're right, 
and and why I think maybe that was still okay. So first off, I just want to say thank you. You know, 90% of this book is a narrative, uh, and 90% of the time I spend talking about it is about the conclusions, uh, which is totally understandable, but it, it is a narrative that I tried to tell as fairly and even-handedly as possible, and I hope that anyone who's interested in this history will find it interesting, independent of the conclusions that I reach. Uh, the story of monetary policy is really one of the central narratives in this book because uh, there was such a consequential revolution in that space, uh, and it was directly uh, the result of Milton Friedman's ideas. Uh, and, and so it's just a fascinating story about the way that really one man uh, can reshape uh, you know, the approach to economic policy, not just in the United States, but around the world. It's an amazing story. Uh, and the short version of it goes like this. Uh, it used to be the case in the aftermath of World War II that monetary policy was regarded as a bit player. Uh, the government was focused on fiscal policy as the primary lever of macroeconomic policy. Uh, and, and they thought that they had the ability to really, uh, you know, manage economic growth uh, by, you know, t tinkering with taxation and with spending. And Friedman begins to argue vigorously, even before he has the evidence for it, uh, that really this is misplaced, uh, that the result is never going to be good, that what you want to do is focus on monetary policy. Uh, and in focusing on monetary policy, you want to take a very narrow view of what that means. In his view, you should just increase the supply of money at a regular rate. Uh, you should try to take sort of a, in the face of uncertainty, adopt a minimal approach to moving forward. Uh, I, I think of this as the question of how one moves through a dark room, basically. Uh, the Keynesians were very much of the view that you sort of grope your way through the room, try to adjust situationally, respond to the individual obstacles as you confront them. And Friedman, by contrast, was saying, no, the best way to get across is to walk a straight, a slow straight line across that room. That will produce the best results on average, basically. Uh, and so he argued for what came to be called monetarism, this approach, uh, and gradually prevailed uh, beginning in the late 1960s and the early 1970s. He uh, brilliantly uh, made a series of predictions about the results of the Fed's monetary policy that he publicly contrasted with the Fed's expectations uh, and showed repeatedly that he was right and they were wrong, that his mechanics better explained what was happening in the economy. And as the economy faltered in the 1970s, policymakers began to uh, say, okay, you know, our tools aren't working. How do we adjust our understanding of what is happening here? Uh, Friedman ha has said that, you know, the way that economists influence public policy, and I think it's a profound insight, is when things break down, you have an alternative ready to go. Uh, and that's what happened in the 70s. There was this breakdown in economic understanding. Stagflation, high, high unemployment and inflation, which was thought to be impossible in the Keynesian framework. Yeah, one of the stories I tell in the book, which I love, is about a woman named Juanita Kreps, who was a professor of economics at Duke University and also the uh, Commerce Secretary in the Carter administration. She resigns from the Carter administration in the late 70s because she's become so frustrated with their inability to grapple with these problems. And she also resigns as a professor at Duke University because she says she doesn't know what to teach her students about economics anymore. And that story, more than anything, captures for me sort of the existential crisis of Keynesianism in those years. Yeah, that would make Diogenes very happy. I, that's <laughs> such a rare, an honest uh, professor, an honest economist. you you, you got to search high and low for him. Absolutely. Uh, and so what happens is Paul Volcker, uh, who uh, not necessarily because he was a student of Friedman's, but because uh, their minds met and they agreed about, about these issues, uh, comes into power in those years uh, and adopts 
you know, he declares war on inflation uh, in so many words. Uh, and he sets out to really break the back of inflation expectations in the United States and implements a new approach to monetary policy that is focused on inflation. Uh, you know, if you look around the world, uh, the Central Bank of New Zealand is a great example of this. Their mandate uh, in the 1970s had like eight objectives in it. Uh, you know, they were responsible for trade balances. They were responsible for the exchange rate. They were responsible for unemployment. They were responsible for all sorts of things. Uh, and it was stripped down to just one, which is hit an inflation target. Uh, that's sometimes portrayed, by the way, that the rise of inflation targeting, which is what emerges out of, out of the, in the aftermath of the Volcker era, was certainly portrayed at the time as a failure of Milton Friedman's ideas. I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think it was his victory uh, in a slightly different form than he anticipated. Uh, but the idea that monetary policy was central, that it should be minimalist in its approach, uh, that it should just try to keep things on an even keel, uh, was really the core of his idea. Uh, and by convincing people that that was the proper approach to monetary policy, uh, he gradually changed uh, the approach to central banking around the world. It's interesting. When I interviewed him in 2006, he attributes the success and triumph of his ideas not to his research, the monetary history of the United States, this magisterial volume of incredible detail, but rather to the success of Don Brash, the central banker of New Zealand, in slaying inflation there and opening the eyes of people to this possibility. Interestingly, he also argued uh, he, he, remains pu he remained puzzled by the disinterest in, uh, in publicly talking about monetary targets and instead looking at, say, interest rates. Uh, he, he said, that's what they say, but it's not what they do. And uh, I challenged him, interestingly. I, I just have to mention this anecdote. I've never told it on air. After that episode came out, I challenged him. I said, you know, the, the monetary aggregates don't really show the correlation with economic activity that you that your work and you're suggesting. He said, no, you're looking at – he wrote me back an email. He said, this is, again, this is 2006 – He's 93 or 4 at the time, I think. Um, he says, you know, he sent me a spreadsheet. He said, you're looking at the wrong M. It's M2 or whatever it was. I don't remember. It's not important really right now. It just was, it was an extraordinary thing that this 90-plus-year-old man was sending me a spreadsheet just because he still cared. He cared a lot. I don't know whether he's right or not, but, it, but he was fascinated by this, this issue of how his recommendations of, of a, a steady rate of growth in the, in the monetary in a monetary aggregate, uh, was was still uh, underlying what he thought was the economic stability of, of the world econ world world's economies. I don't know if he's right or not, but it, it's it's a great uh, it's a great moment in intellectual history that I, I get a little window in a window in, into uh, personally. But the part I don't understand about your claim is that I don't know how what, what actual chair of the Fed. Activity, uh, attributes are and, and true motivations, but you know the Humphrey Hawkins Act told them they should look at two things, right? They have to look at unemployment and inflation. It seems to me they pay a lot of attention to both. Uh, that if inflation is rising, excuse me, if unemployment were rising, it would encourage uh, activity from the Fed. They wouldn't ignore it. Its fiscal policy still plays a role. We had a Seven hundred eighty-seven, I think, billion dollar or whatever it was, stimulus package from Obama. So, is it really as strong as you as you, as you claim in terms of that mix? So, I think you know Humphrey Hawkins is is a really interesting uh, law because it was written as sort of a last gasp of this Keynesian view of monetary policy, and and really was never uh, 
never really took hold. <laughs> uh, it was sort of their last attempt to force the Fed to behave in a way that the Fed had decided it was no longer going to behave. So I, I think the answer to the question is really the Greenspan era. Uh, and during the Greenspan era, what you have is a central bank that has decided that its focus is on inflation targeting, although it has not yet said that explicitly and publicly, but it is behaving as an inflation targeting central bank. And furthermore, has concluded, and Greenspan did say this publicly, that 1% inflation is better than 2 and 0% inflation is better than 1. There's no evidence for this, certainly none that he presented at the time, but that is focused on minimizing inflation and that is willing uh, to tolerate higher unemployment in the service of that goal. Uh, and so, you know, there are these very interesting calculations of the extent to which the Fed tolerated higher unemployment that conclude that on average during the Greenspan era, it was much as a percentage point higher than it needed to be, which is to say that millions of Americans were out of work unnecessarily during that period. Um, and, and so, yes, there was never a time when they said, we don't care about unemployment. There was never a time when, you know, perhaps if unemployment had risen to 10% as it did during uh, the recent recession, that they wouldn't have responded aggressively. Uh, but it was the case that at the margin, they were prioritizing uh, the, the minimization of inflation over unemployment. And I think that's a fair point. I think that's the right, right way to say it. I think the emphasis was always on inflation. Sometimes they regretted it. <laughs> I don't think they, they – they, I, I, I think when it did lead to a recession, uh, they were very uh, disappointed. But I do think there's a, there's an historical aspect to this. When I, when, when I talked to Friedman about um, the price controls and the death of price controls and the fact that there was no clamoring for price controls today, say, on uh, gasoline when I, in 2006 when gas prices were somewhat high – and I said, well, see, economists have finally accomplished something. He said, nah, 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 it's nothing to do with economists. He said, people are alive today who lived through price controls in the 70s, and they hated them because it led to long lines and fights. And it's just, when those people die off, the demand will come back. Um, I suspect there's some of that going on with inflation. The people you're, that you profile in the book, Volcker, uh, Burns, Friedman, others, they had a very different memory of, say, the 1930s than, than you and I can have. For me, I know that my parents lived, my dad was born in 1930, my mom in 1932. And as I've probably mentioned on the on this show before, I, I lie to them sometimes. I usually tell them later, but I often will lie to them about how much I paid for a pair of shoes because they just can't imagine paying more than, say, $25, $40, $50 for a pair of shoes because in their life growing up, shoes were not something you wasted money on. You, you got a pair that covered your feet and you moved on. Uh, there was always a haunting fear of, of a depression. And so people were born in that era, grew up in that era, lived through that era, behaved differently. I suspect central bankers who, who either lived through the, the Great Depression or were close to it through their teachers probably have a different attitude of, of say, the Weimar Republic and the the destruction that inflation led to. So that fear, I think, played a role and maybe won't play as much a role in the future. Listen, I, I am not uh, trying to make the case that ideas uh, operate independent of a context. I think that economists are enormously influential, but they're influential in a, in a world in which people are venal and people are fearful and people are selfish and all of these things are true side by side. But it is also true that what makes it possible, what sort of shapes the way that humans express those tendencies is often the set of available ideas uh, and policy options. And so it is the case that 
uh, you know, the reason people didn't want to put price controls on gasoline is that they remembered the long lines of cars in the 1970s. Uh, but it's also the case that uh, the idea had been discredited and an alternative framework was available. Uh, there's a wonderful story about uh, an economist coming to Washington to tell a congressional aide to try and convince him that there was a problem with a policy. Uh, and the guy said, well, this the, he made his presentation to the aide, and the aide responded, well, this isn't a political issue. And the guy said, well, what do you mean it's not a political issue? And the, the aide said, well, you haven't given me an alternative. And until there's an alternative, it's not a political issue. Let's talk about consumers. Uh, one of your critiques of modern economists is that we focus too much on consumption uh, at the expense of production. And so I'm going to try to defend that perhaps, but I want to let you make the case. What's wrong with that? It goes back, by the way, to Adam Smith. It's, it's really the centerpiece of the wealth of nations. Absolutely. So this is one of Smith's big ideas, one that's sort of so much in the water now that it almost, he doesn't get credit for it, I yeah. think. Uh, but it's a very central idea, and, and it's a longstanding debate. Uh, and I think that the problem as it played out in the United States was that this priority, I think of the town of Salina, Ohio, uh, which is where Huffy bicycles were made for years and years and years. Uh, you know, about a thousand people were employed making these bicycles. Uh, and Huffy was under pressure from Walmart to reduce its prices. And so it closed that factory in the late 90s and moved it to China. Uh, and today, uh, there is in, in the parking lot of the former Huffy factory, there's a Walmart supercenter where you can buy Huffy bikes uh, that are cheaper than the ones that were once made in that town. The unemployment rate in Selena eventually returned to something resembling, uh, you know, the Huffy period. Uh, but the jobs don't pay as well. Uh, what's there now is not as good as what was there uh, a couple of decades ago. Uh, the bikes are cheaper, but the people are making less money. And that, in a nutshell, is the condition of a lot of communities across the United States. Uh, we were very successful uh, in reducing the prices of goods and services, with some notable exceptions, uh, healthcare, education, obviously. But in general, consumer goods and services are a lot cheaper than they used to be. But the consequence, the way that we achieved those victories, uh, was by you know tearing the heart out of a lot of communities, uh, you know making it harder for people to make a living, particularly at the low end of the economic spectrum. Uh, you know, there's an economist named Alfred Kahn who deregulated the airline industry, uh, and he has this quote in, in the 1950s uh, where he says basically, you know, it can't just be about prices. It also has to be about the jobs. It also has to be about the communities. And I think that's right, that that broader calculus is important. Ironic from the man who Indeed. relentlessly lowered prices through deregulation and, and it's forgotten, I think, to some extent. So I'm glad you're bringing him back. And he's in the book, obviously. gets some nice coverage in the book. Um, so I want to give a different perspective on the Huffy story. But first, I want to just ask you, what would you do about it? So Walmart put that pressure on. That's, that's capitalism. Uh, we used to be called capitalism. Um, consumers got the benefit. It was hard on some people in that town, for sure. Would you have stopped it? Would you have put tariffs on the bikes coming in from China to discourage Walmart? So things, economic change has, has some tough times and some good things. How do you pick and choose? How, how would you possibly deal with that? I think the change is good and important. I think that regul I think so one important function of government as an economic policymaker is regulating the pace of change or creating an environment in which that can be done. 
this is a point that Carl Polanyi makes very powerfully, and I really agree with him. Uh, and I think, you know, with regard to globalization in particular, uh, the fact of globalization was inevitable and beyond the control of policymakers in the United States. Manufacturing was going to be spread more evenly across the face of the globe. Uh, and that has had enormous benefits, both for the people in the rest of the world and in many respects for the people here in the United States. The role that I think the government failed to play uh, was was threefold. First, in regulating the pace of that change. Uh, one example, uh, you know, is is dock workers unions, which were enormously successful in negotiating deals as uh, break bulk shipping was replaced by container shipping, and the need for dock workers was radically reduced. They basically uh, negotiated with the shipping lines to say, "Don't take the full measure of the available profits immediately. Phase us out." Let us retire and don't replace us. Uh, and these deals were successful in preserving the livelihoods of that generation of workers while giving their children time to go get a college degree and find something else to do with their lives. Uh, the second thing which we've already talked about is, I think, disinvestment. Uh, the government uh, pulled back from its role uh, in investing in future economic growth in helping to seed the replacement, the industries that might have emerged to replace some of the jobs that were lost in lower-paying industries. And so, you know, North Carolina textile factories uh, were never going to be preserved. There's no version of modern times in which thousands of workers are still making cannon towels in Kannapolis, North Carolina. The question is, what could government have done to uh, seed new industries that might have employed more of those people? Um, and and then, you know, I think that the final aspect of it is is the social safety net, is the question of what you do for people who are left behind. What is the obligation of American society to people who, through no fault of their own, but simply because of changes that are good for us in the aggregate, uh, have been dropped out of the bottom of society. And and I'll say this, the fact that we now have a degree of homelessness that is unprecedented in American history is a direct reflection of how frayed our safety net has become. No, I, I, I just... I disagree with that last point um, pretty vehemently, I think. But I, I don't want to forget my previous point, which is more important. Um, so I'm going to let that go for a moment. Maybe we'll come back to it. The pace of change is an interesting question. Um, I, I don't think it's a good idea to change policy radically, instantly, and not phase it. And I totally agree with that. I think the seeding new industries, I don't think government's very good at it. I think the more... And the private sector is really good at it. It's really good at starting new businesses and new industries and did. We have enormous expansions in all kinds of sectors in response to the innovations and the growth of trade in the United States. The problem is those new industries weren't particularly attractive or didn't particularly use the people who had been in Kannapolis, North Carolina, making those towels. So those communities did struggle Normally, what would have happened, what happened throughout American history, is they would have moved to where the better jobs were. For some reason, that hasn't happened, for a lot of reasons that are probably complicated and and, and not easily uh, figured out. But one of them, of course, is that moving to a large American city instead of a small town like Kannapolis has gotten increasingly expensive because of the way we regulate land use in, in a handful of important cities that have economic growth. So... So I, I, I half agree with you there, but it's just not obvious to me the government could have done a better job, say, finding opportunities for, for less educated workers, high school graduates, or people who didn't finish high school. We used to have an easier time. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the big problems here actually is uh, a failure of regulation, which is the regulation of the housing market, which has you know, made it impossible uh, for workers to find affordable housing in the areas where jobs are most available. 
but there's also a failure of regulation that I think is consequential, and that is, and we haven't talked about this yet, but the dismantling of, of antitrust enforcement. Uh, we've seen a real, real slowdown in, in new business creation in the United States. Uh, and I think one big reason for that uh, is that it has become, you know, it's, it's a sclerotic landscape, basically. It's just really hard for new businesses to find the room to grow uh, and to thrive against big competitors. Um, and that question of why new business creation is slowing down, I think, is a critical one because that you're right. I mean, much of even if government is successful in investing in basic research or in creating some kind of infrastructure to foster new industries, uh, the vast majority of that's going to happen in the private sector uh, necessarily and appropriately. And the question is, are you creating a regulatory environment in which companies uh, can uh, prosper and grow? And, and it seems pretty clear that in the United States right now, we've got some problems in that area. Yeah, of course, it could be that we've overregulated small business. Sure. It's hard, it's hard to know. Um, let's talk for a minute about those the homeless problem because I, it it's deeply disturbing, and I think it's it's um, in some cities it's it's growing, and things are going to change. I'm not sure what direction they're going to go. Um, I, I feel maybe I'm reading the data wrong. In my reading of the data, safety net's not gotten any smaller over the last 40 years it's still you could argue it should be more generous but i don't think it's gotten like spartan most of the homeless problem are people with mental health problems that we decided to give them the freedom which is a beautiful thing we said instead of locking them up and treating them as criminals which is what we did in the 60s and 70s for people who had schizophrenia and other serious mental health issues we let them live their own lives that's a beautiful thing and it's a very painful thing obviously it's not clear they can do that well it's not clear who should make that call, but those are folks who don't want to be part of, most, a lot of them don't want to be part of a safety net. They are just doing their own thing on the streets. It's, you could argue it's one of the great kindnesses of our society and one of the great cruelties, I, and I'm, I have mixed feelings about it. So I think we could spend a whole hour on homelessness because I think not only is it a fascinating and important issue, but it's a lens on this moment in American society. I'll just say two things quickly. The first is, Whatever your views of how we're dealing with the mentally ill, whatever you think about that aspect of the problem, the growth of homelessness, particularly in cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York, is being driven not by sort of that traditional homelessness population, which has remained relatively stable in its dimensions, but by a new kind of economic homelessness in which people are losing their homes even if they have jobs uh, you know, I was recently in L.A., and they have these supervised car parks where people can sleep at night. The people who sleep there are school teachers and Walmart employees and Disneyland employees. They're not mentally ill. They're not abusing substances. They simply don't make enough money to afford a home in Los Angeles. Uh, and that problem, which is fairly new, uh, is, I think, really th the one that needs urgent uh, public response. Well, let's talk about antitrust, which um, you mentioned uh, we have gotten a lot more tolerant of mergers. I think it's a really important issue. Uh, my side has generally applauded that, and certainly the intellectual roots of that applause are were respond, as you point out correctly, in the work of Aaron Director at the University of Chicago Law School, Friedman and others, who saw, I think correctly, that much antitrust policy did not help consumers. It helped reduce competition. It made it easier for large firms to thrive. And so the, the consequence of that is that it's gotten a lot easier to become a large firm and maybe a little harder to start a new firm. Uh, I don't know if that's true. But as you point out in the book, and I think I, I salute you for it, most of those 
large firms treat their consumers well. So what's, what, what's to be concerned about there? So this is, in the first place, another of these sort of, I, I think, you know, clear and fascinating narratives about the way that economists literally reshaped the American economy through the force of their ideas. And Aaron Director, as you mentioned, plays the central role in this drama. Milton Friedman's brother-in-law. Yeah. Uh, and, and <laughs> Friedman everywhere. You Friedman can. <laughs> everywhere. Uh, fascinating guy in his own right. Uh, an economist who taught at the University of Chicago's law school and taught a generation of, of legal scholars, uh, including Robert Bork, who was one of his students, and Richard Posner, who was not a student of his, but ended up being something of a protege uh, as a fellow member of, of the faculty at Stanford, actually. Um, and, and they uh, reshaped the government's approach to antitrust enforcement, uh, largely by convincing the courts rather than uh, the executive or legislative branches, and, and the consequence, I, I think it's really important to be clear about this, there is very little, if any, evidence that this has been bad for consumers. To the contrary, it's probably been good for consumers. Uh, beer is a great example of this. We've seen the number of brewers consolidate radically over the last half century. Uh, we're not talking here about the separate universe of microbrewing, uh, which is a small and and uh, almost a different product. But you know, you sort of your basic six pack is now produced by one of two companies. It's cheaper than it's ever been before. The quality is probably better than it's ever been before. Uh, you know, there's sort of a straight line there between consolidation and the improvement of of the consumer experience. Um, so what's wrong? Well, what's wrong is a couple things. The first is uh, that, you know, this old, what we were talking about a moment ago, the, the trade-off between our lives as consumers and our lives as producers, when you get this type of consolidation in industry after industry, it means that brewmasters have fewer places to work and less leverage to negotiate wages. And that's true, you know, right down to the level of fast food workers taking orders uh, on the overnight shift at Burger King. Uh, we've seen a diminution in the variety of employment options and as a consequence, a uh, diminution in the bargaining power of workers. Uh, and there's increasingly interesting evidence that these uh, effects are one reason that, that wage growth has been uh, less good than we might like. So that's one issue. Another is the consequence for innovation. Uh, you know, concentrated industries have fewer incentives to innovate. The, this is a big concern, I think, right now in the mobile phone industry, where much of what has driven just an absolute explosion in innovation in the last few decades was this frantic fight for survival between uh, you know, T-Mobile and Sprint, both of which were scratching and clawing to, to you know, keep pace with Verizon and AT&T. Uh, it was it, it. Life as a mobile phone executive sucked. It was terrible. It was no good. And that's exactly what we want. That's how it's supposed to work. That's <laughs> capitalism yeah. in all of its raw beauty. Yep. Uh, and the solution is that we're now allowing T-Mobile to buy Sprint, which is just antithetical uh, to capitalism. It means that there's going to be less competition, less urgency, less fear of survival, less of all of the things uh, that drive innovation and improve the customer experience. And so... We've seen that in industry after industry, uh, and I think it's consequential. It's made life easier for the companies and their executives, to be sure, but not for the not in the long term uh, for for the consumers. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure that's right. Obviously, it's a complicated issue. I just want to point to one area where uh, large has still leads to a lot of of innovation, and that's the tech industry. Now, I, I'm increasingly worried, as listeners know, about the power and and influence of, of a handful of large firms. But it's interesting. Right now, one of the ways you get really rich in America is to come up with something that Google wants to buy. Uh, I think they just bought Fitbit. Is it Google at bottom? I think Google bought Fitbit. Uh, it's either Google, Amazon, or Apple. Right. And Amazon, Apple, I didn't buy them, so it's Google. 
Um, so Google buys Fitbit. So Fitbit, I think it sold for $2 billion. That was a good deal. Um, I knew somebody uh, who worked at Fitbit a while back, and I thought, you know, she's not going to make it because she's going to – this company's not going to make it. She's going to need to look for a job soon because Fitbit's just – it's too many – the Apple Watch. There's too many big companies that can stomp them out, outcompete them. But they didn't. Fitbit stayed alive. And um, you know, I, I think of the things that, that revolutionized my life, uh, one of them would be Waze. Waze is a glorious nav- the navigation tool on my phone. It's extremely uh, helpful to me. Unimaginable 25 years ago. <laughs> 25 years ago, the technology for not getting lost was called a map. And it wasn't very good. It didn't work very well. Um, uh, Waze is extraordinary. So I see a lot of innovation. Now, you can debate whether that's a good model, that you should innovate a lot so you can be bought out by a large, enormous behemoth. But I do see a lot in the in the tech world. So I, I think there's an obvious analog, actually, in the pharmaceutical industry, where there's Same. a fairly evolved model of small companies innovating in the hope of being purchased by one of the giants, which is good at marketing and distribution and these types of Sort of end stage. And getting FDA issues. approval, which is an enormous fixed cost that no small firm can endure. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I, I have, I spend a lot of time thinking about what's going on in the tech industry, but I'm not sure I have firm opinions about what we should make of all of it. I think it's really complicated uh, whether that framework is, is the best for society as a whole. Where I'm more sure that we have reason for concern, where I see greater reason for concern, is in industries where innovation is not, you know, fast paced and, and, you know, we're dealing with a fairly stable set of. Uh, you know, services and providing mean, the airline industry to take an obvious example of this. You know, we now have four airlines uh, because the government allowed larger airlines to eat smaller airlines until there were four left. And, you know, it's not a coincidence that when you go online and you shop for a route, the prices are going to be the same. Uh, that's an industry in which we have failed to preserve or engender competition. And I think, you know, so airline prices in the decades, so the airline industry, as we've talked about, was regulated in the mid-century. It's sort of a preeminent example of how terrible a system that was. Uh, beginning in the late 1970s, the Carter administration turns to an economist who we've mentioned, Alfred Kahn, to deregulate that industry to essentially allow price and route competition. There's an explosion of competition. And for the first you know, three decades of that process, prices are falling, choices increasing. Uh, I know we're all miserable when we fly, but that's a choice, too, that we've all collectively made and continue to make. Uh, and And that's great. But for the last 10 years, prices have not been falling. Uh, and for the first time in history, it's more expensive to fly in the United States than Europe on a per-mile basis. Uh, and one plausible explanation for that is that Europe arrested uh, concentration at an earlier phase than the United States did. There are more airlines in Europe competing more aggressively uh, on route choice and on price. Uh, and as a consequence of our failure to do that, uh, we, we've lost out on the benefits of competition. Yeah, I would argue that we probably would be the right way to deal with that, at least to start, uh, is to make it easier to enter markets, uh, which are right now controlled through the crazy way that airports offer landing slots. And it's it's a very unpleasant um, market, and that's a shame. And and some of the innovators who cha- who, rad- who revolutionized it, like uh, Southwest, would find it probably harder to do now, which is... Um, of course, the way they did it was they just built new airports or new terminals. It's one way to get around or tried to at least get around it. Um, I want to I want to take a different look at a different set of issues. Before I do, I want to just before we leave some of this history behind, we're going to look forward next. Let's leave the history behind. I just want to make a footnote to one of your claims and see if you want to disagree with me. 
and it, I, I make the footnote because it, it bothers me so much. So it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. Uh, Alan Greenspan was an acolyte of uh, Ayn Rand. He's a free market ideologue. Uh, you quote a number of places in the book where he um, talks about how markets can regulate themselves and doesn't need, we don't need to have the Fed impose its its order here. And I, I think that's a an example of where the rhetoric is not consistent with the action. This is a man who is highly interventionist. First, he ran the Fed. As you point out, that's one of the little, <laughs> one of Friedman's stranger things that he wants government out of everything except money, which is kind of important. Um, Hayek actually favored private money, and maybe we'll get there someday. Doubt it, but maybe. Um, but Greenspan is this free market re- rhetorician who's really good at that. He's a great rhetorician. And yet, when push came to shove, he would bail out the banks. He bailed them out in Mexico. He testified in front of Congress and said, well, it's a terrible thing. Of course, they shouldn't be bailed out, but we don't have a choice. Uh, he orchestrated the res- rescue of long-term capital management, a firm that should have been allowed to lose all its money, as well as those who had foolishly lent it to them. And so, to me, he broke the feedback loops that allowed finance to have any chance of being self-regulating with others. He wasn't alone. Obviously, a lot of people played this role. But if I want to understand what motivated Alan Greenspan it wasn't a free market ideology. It was he wanted to stay friendly with the bankers of the United States and be their buddy. And I think it's really important for a great reporter like you to, to recognize, if you can, that part of the story. Because he was, you know, I don't know if he knew it consciously, but he was not a free marketer in his actions. So I think Greenspan's a really complicated and fascinating figure. Uh, and I take the point that you're making, and I think it's an important one, which is that there was a, a coincidence of interest between advocates of deregulation and of some of these other policies, and of corporations who took a very self-interested, uh, you know, who basically were delighted to find people articulating what they saw as their own interests uh, as verities and as economic principles. And those two things informed each other and talked to each other. And some of the economists who came to prominence and were successful in the policy space were the ones who were willing to walk over a little bit and say, hey, you know what, actually, uh, corporations, I mean, a great idea of this, a great example of this, excuse me, is in the antitrust space where people like George Stigler and others who were once fierce opponents of corporate size, who once really argued vociferously that that large corporations were a problem and a threat, uh, came to see large corporations as a uh, as a preferred alternative, um, and I think it's hard to miss the influence of corporate money on that on that evolution. Um, but in the case of Greenspan specifically, I, I think actually that you know he was a pragmatist at his core, uh, and that is certainly part of what you're seeing in his record is that he was willing to uh, make what he saw as the necessary decisions, even if ideologically uh, they were somewhat inconsistent. Uh, but it's also the case that you know he kept on. I think he did believe in in the idea of markets in some fundamental sense. He believed that regulation would produce inferior outcomes. And what you see in his and I, there's a, par- a long paragraph in the book where I try to document this. Every time something goes wrong, he has the same reaction, which is, "Yes, we need to bail them out this time, but they will now learn their lesson, <laughs> and going forward, we won't encounter this problem again." He had this remarkable faith that you know. It was going to work out that the next time you wouldn't need to, to show up and intervene again. I take that more as a wink to his, uh, to his corporate friends than, uh, but whatever. Um, let, let's, I want to take a different, I want to take a look at a different issue. Uh, and it'll take us, I think, I hope a little toward the future and, and less of the, the history. Um, 
most of your book, it's interesting. I, I'm sure people on the left in the economics profession are, are not happy with parts of your book. Paul Samuelson gets short shrift, for example. Samuelson was this giant figure in both economic theory and, and somewhat in public policy, not, not like Milton Friedman. Um, but he generally agrees with Friedman in the couple places he gets mentioned, which, of course, he did on, on, on many things. Uh, and yet there's a large segment of our uh, profession now, the economics profession, particularly in the last 20 years, that is very far from free market, very far from Friedman as classical liberal, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they're hardcore people on the left. They want much more redistribution. They want government to play a more active role. They're more Keynesian in their macroeconomic policy. And they increasingly, I think, command the high uh, the heights of the, of the intellectual debate. Uh, they've softened tremendously the economic op- opposition to, say, the, the minimum wage. And in fact, many Nobel Prize winners now favor, although some still oppose, but many favor. They've brought the data about inequality that that you're worried about. I think much of that's misleading. is is It's much more complicated. Uh, but they're the they're the voices that are that are giving you voice to these to these concerns. So. Uh, how do you feel about that? So I think that that's an accurate description on the whole, and uh, some of uh, some of the reaction to the book has been along the lines of, you know, well, this isn't true of the present. Well, right, it's a history. It's a, it's the story of what happened, and for much of the period that I'm describing, I think there was remarkable homogeneity uh, in the mainstream of economic thinking in the United States, and. Uh, I think that you know Paul Samuelson uh, ended up conceding to Milton Friedman on a number of. Uh, really important issues, and and I, I think was not as influential, and therefore is not as large a figure in the book, which is kind of a fascinating coda to the history of the 20th century. Because if you'd asked an economist, really at any point during the 20th sure. century, who they thought the most important economist in America was, Samuelson probably would have won the poll. Um, but so, with regard to the specific question, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's been this uh, trans. There, there is a, a number of related revolutions underway in economics. Revolution, perhaps too strong a word, but new approaches, new ways of thinking, new new uh, analytical tools, uh, uh, computing power, and and the power of large databases. All of this is transforming uh, the way that a lot of economists think about the economy. Uh, I think also, you know, if you want to think about policy as a natural experiment, an ongoing natural experiment, economists have been taking lessons from it, and there are things that haven't been working, uh, and people are responding to those failures or shortcomings and saying, okay, what did we get wrong? Uh, How does this reshape our understanding? And so there is something, I I think, interesting and exciting happening where economists are are confronting those questions, uh, and it's just, it's simply true that uh, many of, of my criticisms and many of my observations are rooted in the work of economists uh, who have been working in these uh, veins on, on the fronts of the coal mine in, in recent decades, uh, uh, I think adding to our understanding of, of inequality and of these other dynamics. Now, one of the issues we haven't talked about, but I think is really relevant as we think about the role of economists more generally, that's the what economists call efficiency, um, that we want the pie to be as big as possible. And you're you point out, and I think every good economist res- respects the point that we don't just care about the size of the pie, we care about how it's distributed. I think the other thing I think is lacking, both from the standard economic story as well as the critique of it, is a recognition of change over time. So I want to go back to our Huffy factory in uh, small town Illinois. It's true, very hard times for that town, uh, but eventually those children 
contrary to what I think the data suggests that some have been claiming, but I think those children will have better lives because we're allowing the pie to get bigger. At any one point in time, efficiency, I think, is, is it's, it's valuable to remember that, that some policies have costs that could make the pie smaller. We might even accept those costs sometimes and accept a smaller pie because of regulation or other things. But in general, over time, a dynamic economy has rewards for all citizens. It's not really, I don't think it's always wise to look at a point in time and say, well, these people lost, these people won. And where I agree with you is that the fact that the winners gain more than the losers lose is ridiculous ethical calculus that's utilitarian and morally bankrupt as far as I'm concerned. But to then say, well, we should stop it from happening and ignore the potential that it has to hurt future innovation. And I would say that'd be the same thing for true in the medical industry and elsewhere. We want to keep our eye on that prize too. I absolutely agree with the framing that you're proposing. And I think that this is an empirical question that we're beginning to see people, you know, present evidence about. And and it's an urgent and important empirical question. We need to know whether that's true. If it is the case as you know, the work of Raj Chetty suggests, for example, that we're seeing a deterioration in the likelihood that you're going to do better than your own parents, that suggests that we need to make urgent course corrections. If it is conversely true that in general the children of those Selena families are living better lives than their parents, that suggests that you know we, we deserve better marks for the policies that we had in place uh, over the last generations. I think this is a critical issue. Uh, And we certainly do not want to be taking point in time measurements and making judgments. We really want to think about it in exactly the way that you're suggesting. And of course, Selena may collapse, but their children could live elsewhere. And it's often forgotten also. Uh, The fact that I don't really want to preserve Selena as an economic opportunity. I, I don't want to destroy a community in America or small town life if that's how people want to live. But I don't think we, we want to preserve those as they are for some, for just for its own sake. Yeah, I I mean, I agree with that. So the other point I want to make, um, where I think we agree deeply, but it's not discussed in the book, is uh, even though I like all my former colleagues, many of my former colleagues and teachers, maybe a little more than you do in their impact on American life, and I'm a little more disappointed than than you might recognize in how ineffective they've been. But uh, I do think economists are too powerful. I think it's fascinating that we have become... Uh, you know, George Stigler said this. He's, you have some great Stigler quotes in the book, but one of his non-witty remarks is that he said, "There's only one social science, and we are its practitioners." And I think that was a when I was younger and coming out of grad school at Chicago, I thought, "Damn right." <laughs> now I'm kind of ashamed of it. It's uh, it's arrogant. It's false. Um, and I think the biggest danger. I used to think, well. It's, it's appropriate because we're the only ones that have a, a theory. They're just, the rest of them, they're just all ad hoc, psychology, sociology, anthropology. They just look at different stuff and they don't know what they're doing. We have a theory, consumer maximization, utility maximization, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, rationality. And I, I, first of all, I think a lot of those models are not very good predictors anymore. That I don't agree with that. But the deeper point is that economists focus on what they can measure. And... I've come to believe that most of the interesting things in life and a lot of the most important things in life are things we can't measure, at least in a data set. Uh, poverty is a horrible thing. Uh, so I think it's, it's okay to worry about how much money people have and, and their opportunity to earn a living. But meaning and purpose, dignity, agency, responsibility, these are the things that make life rich. And economists have nothing to say about them. So you'd say, well, okay, 
So other people have stuff to say, but no, we drown them out. We win because we have the data. And I think that's a, a big problem, whether you're on the left or the right in America and economics profession, and curious about your reaction. So, I mean, you've you've written eloquently about this, and, and I, I think that that's right. I wouldn't say that economists have nothing to say. They just have no comp- <laughs> comparative advantage in talking about it. Yeah. But listen, this is profoundly true, and I think it's one fundamental problem with what we've experienced during The Economist's Hour, that there's been a privileging of what can be measured over what can't be measured. We haven't talked about the rise of cost-benefit analysis, which is one of the most profound revolutions of this period. Uh, this uh, systemization of, of, you know, the consideration of the costs and benefits of public policies, which has enormous benefits. It's been a wonderful thing in many respects, but it is the case that that approach basically makes explicit the idea that if you can put a dollar figure on something, then it's going to be privileged in the consideration of public policy over those things that cannot have dollar figures assigned to them. And so you get this almost frantic effort to, for example, and these are real examples, uh, assign a price to uh, a view unimpeded by smog. Uh, or better yet, my favorite, assign a price to a wilderness that no one experiences. How much is that worth to the people who are not experiencing it? These are fascinating questions, but the idea that the only way or even the best way to consider them is through monetary valuation strikes me as misguided. Um, and, and finding frameworks uh, for for doing uh, public policy uh, with economics and other perspectives alongside it, what is valuable about economics, but also what is valuable about other disciplines, I think is enormously important. My guest today has been Benjamin Applebaum. His book is The Economist's Hour. Benjamin, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.